that looks like a nice conservatory you're in there or something, is it? Or extended yeah, kitchen? sort of. Ex- yeah, extended kitchen. This is where I spend all my time. I, I was quite lucky. I had we had the extension done, finished. Well, the the Christmas that lockdowns all started, oh, so yeah. it felt you know really lucky to have some a nice space mm-hmm. and also not to be sort of semi homeless or in a something that was half constructed which you know it could have all gone quite horribly wrong so yeah like my like shed <laughs> <laughs> oh get, get some stick pulled off mike in that shed don't you mate oh uh, it's the most famous shed in uh in british podcasting history at the moment i'll tell you That's is it warm man. i'm worried you're cold oh, yeah no, it's, it's, yeah <laughs> not, not when I walk in it, I have to warm it up for about 20 minutes before the podcast starts and sit here. And, uh, yeah, I've got, I've got my thick, I'll say I've got my thick fisherman's jumper on at the moment, you know, but yeah, it's not as posh as your extension. <laughs> thanks, thanks for joining us anyway, we're really looking forward to this and... Ready to get started? Yeah, yeah let's go. Okay, season three, episode six of More Than A Job podcast, my name is Mike Bradford. Hi, it's Jay Woolerton. And my name is Daniel Bull. Peace and clear now, baby. Yeah, yeah, cause it begins like. And tonight on More Than a Job podcast, in association with Research Ed, we have the pleasure to welcome a leading voice in education, the author of the Research Ed Guide to Send, a self confessed. Fucking hell. That doesn't happen very often, you've got to admit. What's that, two in about 50? Sorry, Karen. That's all right. I was waiting to see if you could pronounce my surname. That's where I was uh, looking forward well, to tripping up. Well, I better check that first before we've got to read it. <laughs> West Pisa. Yeah, well done. Right, brilliant. Okay. Only because I watched you on YouTube before I came on. Um, <laughs> More Than A Job podcast in association with Research Ed have the pleasure to welcome a leading voice in education, the author of the Research Ed Guide to Send, a self-confessed education evidence geek, the COO of TeacherTap, a trustee of the Greenshaw Trust, the curriculum lead for children we send for the Oak Academy and the organiser of Research Ed Berkshire. Yes, it is Karen Westbeezer, MBE. Welcome, Karen. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, you're absolutely welcome. We're really looking forward to this episode. Just to get kicked off with uh, episode six, can you tell us a little bit about your life growing up and your own experience of education in your school years? So... I think I was probably quite a precocious child um, and I see that coming through in my own kids. In my, my first school, I, I loved it. School was great. I was in a, a part of the country where we have a first, middle and upper school system and first school was lovely. But after that, moving to middle school and then on to secondary school didn't, didn't really work very well for me. Um, my precociousness was squashed, I guess. Um, I think I was probably a geek back then, as I still am now. And I got, you know, called boffin. And it wasn't cool. It wasn't good to be clever, to show that you knew some stuff. And so I sort of sunk a bit, I think. And I also think I probably, with hindsight, went to particularly at secondary school, quite a rubbish school. Didn't seem rubbish at the time. It was just school. I don't think kids really know whether a school's any good or not. But looking back now some of the things they did some of the ways they worked weren't great and (laughs) 
the sign I should have picked up on is that my younger brother wasn't sent to the same school as me. I didn't think anything of that at the time. I just thought, you know, the other school in town suits him better. But it's because my parents knew that it wasn't a very good school. But it started changing, started turning that round uh, when I was 16 and I went to an FE college. And that that was brilliant. And the other, the, the, why I studied at uh, the FE college was the International Baccalaureate. So I was back with like other geeky people where it was cool to be interested in stuff and to really get into your studies except I didn't really get into my studies I really got into student politics <laughs> so I got a little bit distracted um, didn't do quite as well as I could have done but still enjoyed my time a whole lot more than I had enjoyed school um, and then by the time I got to university that's when I kind of really started thriving owning my interest in stuff um, I studied education um, I took extra courses in education studies and just just really enjoyed it and, and really kind of pushed on and, and did the best that I could then. Felt that it was okay to do the best that I could. It's not a great time looking back on school for me on the whole though. So you then made the decision to to come into education as, as, as your own profession. What was it that swung it? Have, having had a bad experience, if you like, at secondary school, what was it that made you want to come into education? You know, like I say, my degree was in education studies and I found it all fascinating. It was very much um, a research-based degree. Um, it wasn't a PGCE or anything like that. Um, and I spent four years studying education. And over that time, I, 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 kept, I had a dual honours. So I had it with English because I thought I might want to be a teacher and I needed to keep a curriculum subject. But Spending four years studying education system, education policy, the what goes on in the classroom, I, I didn't think it was going to be for me. I felt that I was probably going to be more effective, more useful outside, looking more at those bigger picture issues. Or maybe I just thought I couldn't hack it. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but I, uh, I left university and got a job at the National Foundation for Educational Research, um, so then really kind of dived into education being uh, something that I was very passionate about. I'd taken time while I was at university. I was a TA. I'd also worked for an exam board. So I knew like lots of different areas of the education system. Um, and NFER was a great grounding for, for experiencing lots of different schools, lots of different classrooms and really getting to know the system and, and making a difference in a, a different way without standing in front of the 30 kids. Do you think it was potentially a lack of inspiration while you were at school? You know, a lot of teachers say, oh, yeah, I know I want to be a teacher. I had that teacher. Where, and then you get the teacher say, yeah, I've done a lot of research. I've done all of that. And, and from there, that's really burnt my passion for it as well. So do you think it was that lack of inspiration in the classroom that made you think actually research is going to be better for me? And that's what's piqued my interest in, rather than going in. Yeah, I think to some extent, that, that's definitely true. Um, it was always, always something that was a bit tempting to me, but not, like you say, there, there wasn't a particular inspirational person. I think maybe if, I think Teach First came about the year after I graduated, I think if that had been there, I think I think everything might have been a bit different, but I would probably have been one of those Teach First as you do a couple of years in the classroom and probably still end up somewhere similar to where I am now, to be honest. And Karen, you've recently written a book, it's been published, I've got it up on the shelf there, The Research Ed Guide to SCND. 
Can you just start off and tell our listeners what was the inspiration behind this project, first of all? Yep. Uh, like with all the research ed guides, I, I'm only the editor. In fact, a co-editor at that, along with um, Tom Bennett. So I was working for a SEND charity. Um, I didn't have a particular background in SEND. Working with this charity was the first time I'd kind of come into contact with it, um, but drew a lot on my research background and all of the people that I knew um, from the research world. And I, I was, I think even before I joined there, quite a regular uh, attendee and presenter at research ed conferences. And I presented uh, on dyslexia at Research Ed 2018 um, and was a bit perturbed afterwards by quite a strong narrative that was going around on Twitter, maybe maybe slightly more by the detractors of Research Ed, but, you know, everyone was joining in, um, about how little Research Ed does about SEND. Um, they felt that it, it didn't fit together. And so I got in touch with Tom and said, I'd like to write about this. And I wrote an article for the Research Ed magazine um, about how everyone's a teacher of SEND and how you don't need a conference or uh, particular sessions to be about SEND. It's all about bringing the SEND to those sessions. So you can ask questions in any research presentation of how does this apply to children with SEND? How was children with SEND included in this research? Do you think there might be any challenges in applying this to other contexts? There's lots you can do as a person participating in a conference to bring SEND to it. So I made this argument um, in, in the Research Ed magazine. And then it was a year or so later that Tom reached back out and said, could you pull together the Research Ed Guide to SEND? So bringing in all the different contributors uh, and people that I knew who write really well in this area. Um, and I also wanted to make sure that the book had quite a broad spectrum of contributors because uh, SEND touches mainstream schools massively. So 80% of kids with SEND are in a mainstream school. Um, but obviously there's special schools as well. And alternative provision has a really high proportion of kids with SEND too. So I wanted to make sure all of those different areas were covered um, by people who are experts to, to make contributions to the book. And a couple of weeks ago, we had Matt Hancock on the podcast talking about his dyslexia screening bill. I don't know if, if, if you've heard about that. I mean, I'll, I I'll give that. a brief overview. Mm -hmm. um, he's looking to bring into Parliament, he's got his second reading in a month's time, so that every single primary school age child will be screened and just initially screened for dyslexia. Um, so obviously we can identify people at a, you know, at a much earlier rate. Matt Hancock said four in five of people, four or five dyslexic children people are not picked up or noticed. Um, I'm just making that point because you're talking about your, your talk about dyslexia. I don't know if there's anything you mm -hmm. want to add to that argument or what your thoughts are on, on that bill. Yeah, obviously dyslexia is actually really quite contested. And, and Tom did ask me if I could have a chapter on dyslexia in the book. And I, I, I didn't want the book to focus in on any one particular learning difficulty or disability. So we, we stayed clear of it. I think it's quite interesting. There's, there's research that shows you can't screen too early. There's also a really quite compelling argument that 
for a lot of children, a broader term of literacy difficulties is useful. So dyslexia isn't, and I'm sure you would have gone into this, dyslexia isn't necessarily about reading. It's a processing disorder. And so being not being able to read as easily as other people is just one of the signs that you have this processing disorder. So I, I don't know. I, I, I suspect it's not going to be successful. It doesn't sound like something that would go terribly well within the current policy climate. And I do think there are things like the phonics screening check that already pick up a lot of this. Um, and that's obviously much more about decoding than about reading. But I think it, it's still an issue. And when you look at the small-ish proportion of kids who are not passing that screening check now, actually, I think that's where we need to look really a lot more closely. Um, and a lot of those do have SEND and they will have literacy difficulties that do need to be picked up in a lot more detail. So I guess I'm talking myself into suggesting that Maybe we already have a kind of screening test. I did a very dangerous thing a few years ago. I read a book and <laughs> the book seems to suggest that it was dyslexia was part of a de brain developmental delay, but it was highly linked to ADHD and ADD. So what, what the author was saying was that part of the brain's not developed fully and depending on which part of the brain isn't developed fully will give off a particular symptom, i.e., lack of organisation or, mm -hmm. you know, inability reading. So that's why you see so much comorbidity between. But often students who've got dyslexia will also have an attention deficit disorder. It's not uncommon. So is that proven research or was that sort of pie in the sky? It's not research that I've read. And that doesn't mean it's not proven research. I haven't read, I haven't read all the books or the book that you've read. Um, so I don't know. I, I think it's it needs more research. I think it's an area that's that's really important. I think one of the, the big things that comes through in having written or edited the, the, the research ed guide said is how little evidence there actually is around SEND in general, about specific conditions, and even the more medicalized conditions where there, there is a, a large medical literature related to brain function. It doesn't get carried across into education and learning. So there's a massive gap. And Karen, just thinking about the book, all the research that you've pulled together and experts that you've spoken to, what are the key things that perhaps you've learned from the book that you, you didn't come across before? And what are the, the, the key things that need to be passed on to practitioners, you know, who obviously are you know, working with children, potentially with SCND every day? Through all of the different chapters, so chapters covering the statistics, chapters covering practice in the classroom, chapters covering whole school organisation. There, there were three key themes that came to, seemed to keep reoccurring. Um, the first was about high quality teaching or quality first teaching. And I, I'd struggled with this concept for quite a few years because no one could actually give me a, a proper definition of what it is. And um, and I remember challenging people, quality first teaching, what is it? Is, isn't it just like kind of do good teaching? And there, there's some of the uh, uh, contributors to the book do unpick that a little more. But broadly, it is just doing really great teaching for these kids that need it most um, and really focusing on that. Um, and I think it links back. I, I found some links back to the national strategies now. So it's kind of where it's first started appearing. 
Um, so high quality teaching um, for, for everyone, but especially for kids with SEND. The importance of teaching assistants and the appropriate deployment of teaching assistants, they really are the backbone um, of the SEND system and they need to be deployed appropriately so that they are well-trained, so that they are supporting kids in the right way and so that they are working with the teacher in ensuring that the, that the uh, provision for the SEND kids in particular is there. Um, I'm always quite nervous to hear about teaching assistants going, taking kids off for a lot of interventions. I'm not any sort of proponent for a lot of interventions. I think keeping kids in the classroom and working alongside their peers on as much of the curriculum as possible is great. But using that extra adult pair of hands uh, and skill set in the classroom is really important. There's actually a, a chapter in the book written by Rob Webster, who is just the guru on this stuff. And then the third area is about the importance of parents. Um, when it comes to well, to all kids, but particularly those with a special educational need or disability, their parents will have a really great understanding of how best to work with the children and to, for, for teachers, for schools to really communicate and harness that knowledge, not to kind of brush it off and leave it at the gates, but to really work in partnership with the parents to ensure that the, the children where you know, maybe some of your normal strategies as a teacher aren't working that well. Have a chat with mum or dad and see if there's something that, that can be done or if there's any kind of rationale behind it. There, there, there might not be. <laughs> they might be blindsided too. But to have that a really, really strong relationship with parents, um, I think is quite important across education, but particularly for these kids. And I suppose I look at it from a different angle. What are the biggest mistakes that you see and hear or that research shows that, that teachers and, and TAs make when teaching SEND students? I think probably the biggest thing that you could do wrong is to, to not teach them, to write them off, to not have those high expectations, to let kids go out of lessons, whether that's English or whether it's French or art to have them missing out on core lessons, lessons they might enjoy, lessons where they might be able to actually work at the same level alongside their peers. Don't take that away from them. Think about other ways around it. So things like pre-teaching rather than taking kids out of the class to have a completely different syllabus. That, that doesn't seem right to me. So teach the kids as you would anyone else. As teachers, you're the most expert person in that room. Why wouldn't you give your expertise to that kid who needs it most. We can clearly see your passion for SEND students, clearly see how much time you spend researching on it. So are there any policy changes that you'd like to see the DfE implement to hold school educational outcomes and experiences for SEND students? Well, there's money, obviously, but we, we won't dwell on that. I think beyond that, what I, I would like to propose at school level, and this is a little bit of a... An out there suggestion. I'd, I'd be keen to hear what you guys think of this. I think the role of the SENCO needs to change um, quite significantly. I don't think the SENCO should be spending a massive proportion of their time filling in 
complex forms and doing a whole lot of multi-agency um, networking and discussion. I think this, the Senko in your school is the very best teacher for working with Sen kids. So why are they being taken away to do the bureaucratic elements of it? You can get, I don't know, they're, they're not going to like this, but you can get your school business manager or your secretary or whatever to be doing the paperwork. Paperwork is paperwork. They could probably even do some of that liaison stuff with the other agencies. Where the Senko should be is either in front of the child or in front of the teachers and training other teachers how to work in the very best ways. So I think the first thing I'd do would be quite radically change the role of the Senko. The second thing, which is a slightly higher up policy level, is I would have the system much more centralised. So unless you're quite closely involved in this, you might not realise, but when you're writing an EHCP, filling in the EHCP form, each form for each local authority is different. So if you're in a school that's kind of near an authority boundary, if you're in a map that has schools across a number of different regions, you're going to spend a massive proportion of your time filling in different forms, maybe for the same kid, in different orders and going through different hoops at different stages. And it just seems like a massive waste of everyone's time to have this thing reinvented at every different turn. And from the parents' perspective, it's rubbish as well. Because um, you might need, if you're going down the special school route, your special school might not, for, for the particular need that your child has, might not be in your local area. So how you get all that paperwork and how you fill in that, it, it's a nightmare. And I feel really sorry for everyone who's involved in the current system because it's unnecessarily difficult. It could be really simplified and that would be a quick fix. So why is it that Senko's aren't, why is it that schools are so afraid to just put a Senko in front of t teachers, in front of students, and do training. Why is it that schools feel that they're more of an admin role? Yeah, that's really interesting. I don't know. You probably have to ask some head teachers. They are the people who know this stuff, I guess. They know how to fill the forms in. They go on a, a, a course. You have to go on a course to be a qualified Senko. And a lot of that course, from what I can see, is dealing with <laughs> A, the history of SEND, and B, how to fill in these bloody forms. So I think that course should change. I think that should focus on how to work more closely with children, but also really focus on how to upskill your colleagues. I think it was a real missed opportunity that the new MPQs didn't include one for SEND leadership. That's where I'd have loved to see this cited. It does seem like a very quick fix, doesn't it? Get the same yeah. in front of staff. It's problematic, though, because, and it comes back to funding, I guess, a lot of Senkos aren't full-time. Maybe they have other management or teaching responsibilities, um, depending on the size of the school. So it's tricky. There was There's a um, survey that's done annually about the Senko workload, and they're massively overworked. They can't fit in doing the stuff that they have to do, let alone do a load of the extra like stuff like you're describing. And I know many will go far above and, and beyond and I'm, I'm not in any way criticizing the Senkos themselves I'm trying to think of constructive ways that their workload could be changed to, to focus on the the staff and the people need is there a short I, I, I had a quick look at that survey before we mm. before we came on I think it says something like 63 percent of parents say that work's not differentiated properly and Senkos actually agree with that saying that Senkos are on there. I think the big part of it was 
something along the lines of Senkos are on their knees with the amount of workload that they've got and trying to effectively organise work in their school. Are we in danger of not having enough good Senkos in school? Are we not in danger of having enough qualified Senkos in school? Or has it become something that schools are changing the role themselves and they're moving away from what Senko needs to be? I think schools are having to look at this very seriously because the proportion of children with a special educational need is increasing um, and increasing quite dramatically and in some quite worrying areas. So social, emotional, mental health need is getting very high, particularly in primary. And this is only going to kind of filter through into secondary. So it's something that schools, I'm sure, are taking very seriously. But having said that, it's a legal requirement for schools to have a SENCO, unless you're a special school. And that uh, SENCO has to be trained within two years of taking up the post or have been doing the SENCO role for longer than that legislation has been in place. And there's actually quite a large proportion of SENCOs who schools can play the game so they can put people on a Senko for two years and not actually put them through the course so there's ways to game the system that would not be in the spirit of what the system ought to be I hope that that that's becoming quite rare now given the level of need do you think it makes a difference with the fact as well that they're not necessarily part of the leadership team i noted that only 50 about 50 percent of senkos are on a leadership team in primary school but it's less than a third in secondary schools if i'm right in thinking do you think that has a diverse impact on on the work that they can do yeah i think it 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 definitely can although (laughs) whether you want senkos spending more time away from the classroom in senior leadership meetings it's a bit chicken and egg really isn't it um but yeah having the power to speak to leaders and to be the advocate for those kids in those slt meetings seems like quite an important role to me we're on more than a job podcast uh season three episode six now with karen westbees are talking about send Karen, you're on Twitter. Yes. I haven't checked actually how many Twitter followers you've got. Not that it really matters, but have you got an idea? Hold on, I'll look it up. This will be embarrassing if it's not very many now. You've been, it's like, it's a... <laughs> no, it's a reasonable number. Uh, 8,800. 8,800. That's, uh, that's pretty impressive. I mean, I did, I did make this joke last week, so I shouldn't, shouldn't really use it, uh, you know, two weeks running. But I mean, that's about... 100 times more than I've got on uh, on Twitter. So well done for building that up. How long has it taken? I mean, going off tangent, really, not talking about SEND, how long is it taking to build up your Twitter following? And why do you think people are engaging in your tweets? Oh, um, so I joined Twitter when I was at the BBC. Um, and we were kind of told that we it would be very good for us at the BBC as a researcher at the BBC. Um, and I wasn't, it was the a brief point in my career where I wasn't working in education either. Um, so I joined then. Uh, so that's 2012. And it, it's been life-changing for me, to be honest. The amount that you learn, but also the amount that you network over Twitter is really amazing. I don't think I would have got my last four jobs if I hadn't been on Twitter. Um, the people that I've met through it... I. That I've also met lifelong friends through it. Yeah, 
the, the power of Twitter, I don't think, can be underestimated, really. And I don't know whether this, whether Twitter got you this, uh, this, this job to do this next question, but you, uh, you led the production of the curriculum for SEND students for Oak National Academy at the start of the pandemic, which seems a long time ago. Can you talk us through this period of your life? Who contacted you? What were you told about it? And, and what do you think about the success of the Oak National Academy? Yeah, it was Twitter. Um, so I was furloughed from my job. Um, and at the time, I was absolutely devastated because I am very work orientated. I'm very passionate about what I do. I'm very passionate about education. Um, and being told that I could stay at home and homeschool my kids was, was not, my husband would have loved that. But for me, it was, it was terrible. And what I did was I tweeted and I tweeted, I'm the type of person who reads Ofsted reports for fun. What am I going to do now? Matt Hood uh, got in touch. He DM'd me off, uh, off that tweet and said, we're starting a thing. Can we talk about it? Can you do it? And yeah, it was as simple as that. They had been talking about it for a week when they brought me on board. And they were just like, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be called Oak. It's going to be an online school. It's going to cover everything. Um, can you set up the specialist bit of it? And I said, yes, because I love a challenge like that. And it really was quite challenging, though. Um, and the first thing I did was to get on the phone and, and the DMs to the amazing people that I know in the sector, because couldn't have done a jot of it without them. So Anne Heavey was the top of my phone call list, who at that point was the was leading whole school send. Um, and she put me in touch with some leaders of some special schools. I reached out to some special schools and the special schools teaching network as well. We kind of, we, we started pulling it together and mapping out what we would need. But the, the challenge with special schools is that there's not, there's not a national curriculum. Um, but even beyond that, there's not, because there's not any examinations or particular way marks in the education system uh, within special schools that there's no real agreement on levels on what kids are meant to learn at, at what point it's very down to the individual school um, or group of schools how that works and how that works for the pupils within their community so how you then translate that into a national online school it, it was really quite difficult even just conceptually in how you organize that because you don't have year one year two year three because that that just doesn't work you barely have subjects to be honest because it's quite um interwoven and interlinked in some settings um so we started to map out the as much as we could agree on about how you can kind of conceptualize and organize a curriculum um, and we we thought it was very important from that starting point to include therapies as well so occupational therapy speech and language therapy um, and we brought in experts and uh, Neil Gilbride sorted out the the therapist side for me so he's a teacher trainer um, by background and so that was really useful as well and he was an absolute legend in really helping these therapists who don't do a teaching role they do a one-to-one -one individualized therapy role so whilst it was difficult for teachers to take to kind of presenting to a camera rather than a classroom for the therapists it was just like 
it, it wasn't something they could really easily consider. Um, and Neil really worked very closely with them to try and work out what that looks like. So then behind the scenes at Oak, we put together a curriculum and a curriculum map, and then we allocate each of those different uh, lessons and parts of the curriculum to different teachers and different schools to, to fulfill those lessons. All, the, all at the same time, we were building the website and uh, figuring out how recording works and figuring out how to present all of this stuff back to parents. And then the, the thing we were most worried about, ironically, was how we would present all this back to the SEN community. And I had some calls with some parents and some SEN advocates to say, this is what we're doing. Does it, does it sound crazy? Because there's a lot of fierce advocates in SEN who can sometimes really be quite negative because they've had such negative experiences. The education system has not served them well. So they're fighting against everything all the time. Um, and so I was a bit worried about backlash because everyone at Oak was worried about a backlash. Um, and it never came. We published a blog in Special Educational Sen Jungle to explain what we were doing. And there was barely a whimper. Everyone was just like, yeah, that's a good idea. On you go. So, so that was it. And I, um, you said at the beginning that that's what I'm I, I doing, but uh, I only did it for six or eight weeks, got it up and running and, and then stepped back again because I'm not a teacher. I'm not, I was never in front of the camera. It wasn't the right place for me. I, I couldn't, even down to sort of quality assuring, it was arranging other people to quality assure because I can't stand there and tell you whether a teacher's doing a good job in their lesson. That's not my place whatsoever. So it was just bringing all these amazing people together and persuading them to to do it what do you think when you look back at that that period now it seems because it seems it seems madness you know what you guys at oak were tasked to do doesn't it yeah i i guess whilst we all had a big vision it in some ways we it would be scarier knowing what it is now if we'd have started it knowing what it was going to be does that make sense but actually as we were just making it all up as we went along and trying to kind of document and do it in a systematic way as possible you know we were just so buried in the moment that yeah we we didn't know but yeah honestly it's, it's the piece of work I, I'm proudest of in my career it, it was it was an amazing time and it's crazy to think it, <laughs> it was less than two months yeah, well, and hats off to you and, and all the team at Oak National Academy for, for, for doing what you did. Exploring now the inner geek, you said you're a <laughs> self-confessed education evidence geek and you are the COO, Chief Operating Officer of Teacher TAP. For those who haven't heard of it, and I don't know where they've been if they haven't, <laughs> but for those who haven't heard of it, can you tell us what Teacher TAP is, why it was set up, and then with approximately 8,000 responses each day, I think it was 7,300 yesterday, I did just look at a minute ago, what have you learned from it? And, and what a teacher tap, this isn't like a freedom of information request, but what are, what are teachers tap doing with that information and how are you using it to, you know, obviously, you know, try and influence education? Mm -hmm. A lot of questions there. Yeah, <laughs> you might have to remind me of some of them. But uh, so what is teacher tap? Teacher tap is a, a daily app at 3.30 each day. Your phone buzzes with your teacher tap notification that you've got three questions to answer about the day's education. So it could be about the classes you taught, it could be about 
education policy more broadly. It could be your opinion. It could be something as simple as what colour board pen do you like using? Um, we mix it up quite a bit. Um, after you've answered your three questions, you get to see uh, a recommended read, which is just a, a blog that we've found that we think everyone else might find interesting and useful in their day-to-day -day teaching life. Um, and I think the key thing is you get to see the results that everyone else answered the day before. Um, so you get to see, well, you get to see that you're not alone. You get to see that maybe you're, you're normal um, or you're an outlier and, and you can use that information um, as you see fit. It was started by Laura McInerney and Professor Becky Allen, um, who are just two amazing women. Again, for those who don't know, but they've probably been under a rock if they don't. Laura was most recently editor at Schools Week, um, and Becky is a professor of education and ran Education Data Lab relatively recently. I don't think it's her most recent job, but that, that's an example of the kind of calibre of research that she normally does. And they were both, prior to those roles, secondary teachers. And they found themselves in conversation making some assumptions about what's done. I think it was about photocopying. So you remember when Lord Agnew made that bet about if he finds a colour photocopy or give you a bottle of champagne or something like that. And uh, Becky and Laura was like, there's no, no one does colour photocopying these days. It's all black and white. And that was based on their secondary experience. And when they looked into it at primary, it was completely different. So it was about trying to put some evidence to some of the assumptions that we all have about the education system and to be able to share that information for, for kind of the greater good. Remind me what your other questions were. I forgot myself then. Um, I'm saying, and, and what about Teacher Tap? How are you using that information? Because you are one powerful organisation with, mm -hmm. you know, 8,000 daily responses from educational staff. What are you doing with that information, you know, in, in a positive light? I repeat again, this is not a freedom <laughs> of information request. No, no, we're very proud of everything that we do with the, the data. So, like I say, we, we share the results back each day with the people who've answered. Um, we write a blog once a week where we delve in to a bit more detail about what's going on. Um, we use the data in uh, research projects. So for example, last year we had research projects with the Education Endowment Foundation and with the Gatsby Foundation. So we really dive into the detail of what's going on um, there. And I think one of the things that, that surprised me or that I hadn't realized, so I'd worked in the education sector for near on 20 years um, up to that point, as I say, not not standing in front of kids myself. But what I hadn't realised, probably because I wasn't standing in front of kids myself, is quite how lonely the job can be sometimes. Whether that's lonely because you're not seeing a whole load of colleagues or lonely because you're not visiting a whole load of other schools. So as a researcher, I see loads of different schools. And I'd kind of thought that that's kind of what education's like, but it's not. You can stay in one school, maybe in one classroom, for nigh on most of your career if you choose to and, and that can be quite lonely and what I've seen with TeacherTap is that it helps that a little bit it helps people see that they're not alone that there are other people out there like them who have opinions like them who can be part of a community who do something together each day for the greater good and, and it, it, I think it's been really quite reassuring we had a message the other day from a 
um, someone who's an NQT during lockdown, which must have been a really tough time to be an NQT, going in, not kind of really knowing how to do teaching and not really knowing your school, probably not knowing your colleagues. So in that kind of loneliest of times, they had teacher tap um, to be able to see what other people are doing and how they're doing it and to, to feel that they're one of seven or 8,000 teachers doing this. And then, of course, finally on to one of your other loves, Research Ed itself. And <laughs> Research Ed Berkshire is, uh, is closely coming around, 7th of May. And obviously, we mm-hmm. spoke to um, Nick Hart in season two, very kindly uh, asked us to come along and be part of it. So mm-hmm. it's just around the corner. What can we expect at, uh, at Berkshire? Yeah, it's going to be good. So we've got uh, Becky Allen as one of our keynotes. And also, so David Carter's coming out of retirement to come and talk. He, he tried to tell me that he should be talking about golfing handicaps or something like that. But I, I persuaded him to talk about what's next in, in leadership instead. Um, so those are our sort of top and tail keynotes for the day. And then in between, there's just going to be loads of amazing people. We were trying to organise it the other day and it's God knows how school timetablers do it because it, <laughs> it was just like that. We had the post-it notes out and, and trying to work out what our key themes are. So we'll have some people talking about leadership. Uh, so we've got uh, people like Jonathan Mount-Stevens and Carly Waterman talking about leadership. Um, we've got a really strong, as you might expect, SEND and mental health strand. Um, so we're going to have Cassie Young is one of them. Dr. Joe Taylor talking on mental health. He's an ed psych, which is quite a rare find, I think, these days. Um, so lots on send. Uh, we've got literacy strand, numeracy strand. Um, oh, Nick's going to kill me if I forget all of the others. There's so much going on. It's going to be a really good day. And we're really pleased because our area, whilst we're close enough to London that people who who are engaged in this stuff and on Twitter and in the researcher community can go to the national conferences and things like that there's there's not really been anything like this in our our particular local area and we're hoping to get lots of local teachers as well as the research ed fans uh, who, who travel to all of the different ones so yeah it's gonna be a great day and it's quite a thing really it's I mean it's the first ever one in Berkshire isn't it so you must be yep. wanting to uh hit the ground running and, and, you know, show the rest of them how it's done, really. Oh, yes, definitely. We'll have good biscuits. That, that, that seems to be key amongst the rivalry of research heads. Yeah, that's what I like to hear. Karen, obviously, for, particularly for the London listeners, but not really for anyone in that area in, in, in the South East, what, what's the name of the school and what area is it in? <laughs> it's in Maidenhead, at Desborough College, which is like a five-minute walk from Maidenhead train station. Um, so it's super, super easy to get to. And the pub is just opposite the train station as well for before or after <laughs> event drinks. That is, that's got to be a seller, hasn't it? Forget the biscuits, the pub's opposite the train station. <laughs> now, I know this, this is ridiculous. My son in, likes trains and he plays train simulators. I know that Maidenhead's out of Paddington. So if uh-huh. you live in London, catch a train from Paddington to Maidenhead. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's sad, it's sad information, but I do know, I think it is anyway. Yeah, no, um, that's absolutely right. Brilliant. Right. Hopefully there'll be lots of people from London there and other areas in the southeast. And we'll be there as well. Uh, more than a job commentating <laughs> on this fantastic research head Berkshire. Karen, we're going to move on to our quick fire section now. So this is a, a little bit harder for some of our guests because it's literally a one answer 
answer, uh, one word answer or a word association answer. So I'll start you off with these. Uh, marking. Follow the evidence. Emails. If you email at silly times, don't expect responses at silly times. Department time. Use it to collaborate. Can I give you a quick teach tap finding? So I think this is so interesting. Half of teachers say that they collaborate in when they're doing their planning, but only 20% actually get the time timetable to do it together. So use your department time to plan collaboratively. Straight from teacher time. That's it. That's why it's the it hot off the press today. <laughs> it, 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 brilliant, brilliant timing. Booklets for lessons. If you want. Middle leaders. Need to manage up as well as manage down. Data drops. I love data. Mock exams. I struggle on mock exams because I think their meaning and their purpose has changed so massively in the last two years. I mean, before that, I'd have been like, yeah, it's great. Students get a chance to practice. But now the, the stakes are really high. And yeah, I'm all torn on that. So that's not a one word answer. We might end up with uh, mocks for box in the future. Who knows? <laughs> Uh, grammar schools need to be phased out parents evenings really important I think they could be reinvented to be better just do them well with what you've got at the moment isolation booths monitor them closely exclusions monitor them even more closely silent corridors if you like and finally free schools just another name for a school Brilliant. I think you've uh, I think you've passed the test. Some some good answers. Interesting your middle leaders answer because everyone and, and quite rightly, uh, quite rightly, everyone bigs up middle leaders, which is exactly the correct thing to do because they are brilliant, of course, in schools and the engine room. But you gave a slightly different answer. Just remind me of the answer mm -hmm. you gave for middle leaders. Uh, about managing up as well as managing down. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. I've, so I've held quite a lot of middle leadership positions and I find that actually what is quite important is ensuring that the people that you're reporting to so you're their delegation into the organization and making sure that you're telling them what they need to know and that you're guiding them in the decisions that they make you're not just like a little <laughs> little soldier reporting on the other people you're actually managing in both directions and it's quite important to recognize that brilliant brilliant moving on to our fun questions or our so-called fun questions so the first one not too difficult are you a tea or a coffee person karen um i'm tea but i'm about the fancy tea so this is a lockdown thing so i don't like milky drinks i've got into uh lady grey loose leaf tea whilst, whilst on lockdown and, and, and having to make all my own drinks to the extent where now if I go to like a Starbucks or whatever I'll take a pot of tea <laughs> my own little uh, diffuser and just ask them well I will pay them for the hot water in the cup I don't care about that but I don't want to sit and drink their crappy tea. This is a, a all or nothing answer for Starbucks do they charge you for hot water? Yeah they have done yeah they've taken my money. <laughs> You mentioned the pub opposite the train station in uh, Maidenhead. Uh, so if we do get a chance to meet you before Research Head Barks, what can we buy you from the bar? Uh, well, if it's before, then probably a cup of tea. <laughs> um, afterwards, we'll have a glass of wine. So every great, um, every great event starts with great music. Looking forward to seeing what your big 
opening song is at Research uh, Berkshire. But if we were to delve into your Spotify or Apple Music account, what would we find as your number one played artist? At the moment, it'd probably be like that, that song about Bruno from Disney. Oh, from Encanto. <laughs> It's, yeah. yeah, that's it. It's, it's not me. It's the mini peasers. They they have taken over the Spotify account. So it's all sorts of random stuff like that. Um, yeah, remember, I we, have to we hold don't my talk hands about up. Bruno. We don't talk yeah, about Bruno. That's yeah. right. So, yeah, I'm not a big music person. My geekiness stretches as far to listening to Radio 4 whenever I can or podcasts. Not, not music. Sorry. So you'd have a little guilty pleasure that every time you're having a bad day, you turn to. No, no, that would be putting the, the radio for my kids are so, so attuned to it now that when the, the pips go for six o'clock, they're like, that's the dinner time bell, Mary. It's ridiculous. Okay, then. Well, if you were shipwrecked on a desert island, then food and drink mm. taken care of. So, you mm. know, your bottle of wine's there for you. <laughs> what two luxury items would you have to take with you? Well, I really know the answer to this because I've done it. Um, a part of my career was spent uh, a year on a random Indonesian island called Flores. I was a, a researcher there um, and I didn't have any luxuries. So I know exactly what I need to survive. Um, a duvet, a nice, like proper, heavy, good tog, duck down duvet would be lovely. Um, and I know you said you'd, you'd give me all the food and drink, but the other thing I really missed when I was in Indonesia was dairy. Um, they're not really big dairy eaters. Um, and what I managed to, to gather off uh, a woman who lived in a village a couple of hours drive away was some yogurt culture. So I could turn the UHT milk into yogurt. Um, so some, some, something dairy, some dairy culture. is <laughs> my other random answer. You're the first person who started that answer with, well, this has actually happened to me. <laughs> I was expecting you to go, when I was stuck with just a football that I named Wilson and I was fishing, you know, with a spear. But no, still, thank you very much. First one to answer like that. Dan, sorry, over to you. I'm just looking uh, Flores up on Google Maps. I went to Lombok um, oh, yeah. a few years ago. Um, beautiful, beautiful island. I'd love to go back to Indonesia and, and do more exploring. What, what was Flores like? I was up a mountain, so it was quite cold and rainy. Quite large as well for an Indonesian island. It's a Catholic island. I think Lombok is Hindu. So it, it, was, it was quite challenging at the time. I got, frankly, I got quite bored because research, which was my job while I was there, really moves in quite a set number of kind of stages. And there's some quite quiet periods uh, when you're, you're researching as well. So I found it a little bit boring because I could speak Bahasa Indonesian but not well enough to like really make really proper close friends and really understand get under the skin of the culture I wasn't there long enough for that what were you researching <laughs> um maternal health and mortality so mm. it was about uh, the fact that women don't seek antenatal care soon enough um, meaning that maternal health and mortality is quite high in the region. <laughs> you didn't see that going that way, did you? No, I, no, I didn't know. That's probably why you didn't mention the specific bit of research at the start and let me walk straight into that one. Um, anyway, what's the greatest piece of advice that you've ever been given? Mm, it's one we've mentioned already in, in this uh, interview, actually. It's get on Twitter. 
Um, so I say when I was at BBC, I was told to to get on Twitter and it it's been hugely beneficial to me. Scrap the licence fee. Where do you stand on that as a former employee? <laughs> or are you not allowed to comment still? I I think all of the conspiracy theories and underfunding of the BBC is a bit crazy. You talk to anyone, they've always got something that they say, I, it's worth the licence fee alone. Radio 4, worth the licence fee alone. Match of the day, whatever it is, there's something there for you. CBBs, I mean, how amazing is CBBs? as an education resource, the bite-sized stuff. Uh, it, it, there's not a conspiracy. You don't go in the door and like get here's here's your secret left-wing handbook of how to influence people using the BBC. <laughs> it, it's not there. It, it's I just, everyone's there for the good. I wanted to just come in on this. I was I was going to mention it, and you, you you probably sort of good time to mention it. You've worked with Tom Bennett, and one of the questions I asked Tom Bennett at, at Research Ed uh, London, the main Research Ed, was you know you sometimes are accused of being right-wing because you work with the government, you know, under DFE. And, he, you know, he, he was professing to be independent. But I know Tom gets a lot of grief on Twitter from, from certain political spectrum people. Mm. Um, you work closely with Tom, and yet you're an ex-employee of the BBC. I'm not trying to guess your politics, but you did say you'd like to see grammar schools phased out. So it kind of does show that research, Eddie, is, it's diverse, isn't it? It's not something linked to the government. Yeah, it is. Although <laughs> I have stood up at the at a fringe event of the Tory party conference on a panel saying, explaining to everyone there how grammar schools should be phased out. So I'm, I'm willing to say it to anyone um, and base it on the evidence as well. I think evidence is a really good starting point for political neutrality, um, being able to share findings, but also to give recommendations and that can go across the party line. It doesn't need to sit in one place or the other. And, and, I, and I certainly agree with research, Ed. I mean, you know, Tom Bennett has been so, so good to us as uh, as individuals and, and as a podcast as well. And the whole research, Ed, movement, anyone I talk to, is research, Ed, this, research, Ed, that. And, you know, hence why everything, that, you know, this is part of the reason of the podcast. It's about trying to give the, those people who are research and evidence-informed an additional platform to to chat, to discuss, and to to have those professional dialogues, and you know, to sort of use the, the phrase of Tom Bennett to get rid of all the the folklore teaching methods of the past and remove the snake oil from <laughs> from education, which is yeah. ho you know, hopefully what we're trying to do. Yeah, I think so, and that's I mean, it's I think it's really important that Tom invited us to do send and is. A kind of open house for people who want to present you just go onto the research head website and type in your proposal and you get a fairer chance as anyone else um, about whether you, you will get accepted to speak at various events but when it comes to snake oil send is worse than the rest of the education sector there's so many people trying to sell things to some quite desperate parents and quite desperate educators and they call it evidence informed and it's not and it it's really really bad actually well, the, the final question tonight uh, from us, Karen, is what's next for you? What do you, how do you envisage the next 6, 12, 18, 24 months for, for you and your career? Um, continuing on at Teacher Tap, I'm very happy there. I have moved jobs quite a lot in my career. I'm quite a big proponent for trying out new things, new organisations, but I'm actually very, very happy um, at Teacher Tap, and we've got a new project. You might have seen that Harry Fletcher Wood has joined us, and he's heading up a really exciting new project 
um, working even more closely with schools, using our data to help uh, schools even more. So there's really exciting times to come, I think. Karen, it's been a fantastic interview. Hopefully at some point, well, we'll certainly catch up with you at Research Ed uh, Berkshire, but hopefully you'll come on for a, a follow-up episode very, very soon. We've talked uh, Indonesia to Maidenhead uh, tonight. <laughs> Send Twitter, maternal health and mortality, and Lady Grey tea. So we've, we've covered, and the BBC, we've covered a lot of topics in, in one interview. Karen Westbeza, MBE, thanks very much for joining us on More Than A Job podcast. Oh, thank you. Be clear now, baby. Yeah, yeah, cause it begins like...